0: Good evening everybody thank you very much for joining myself and Dr. E. Michael Jones this evening how are you Dr. Mike?
1: Good Gemma good to be here.
0: Great to have you back I think it's uh, we haven't spoken since before Easter so it is lovely and we want to know first of all how you're you're getting on with the, the book the upcoming book on the Holocaust.
1: Uh, it's ready to go to the printer We're we're doing the cover we just finished the index we're ready to go to the printer as soon as it goes to the printer i'll get a date uh, 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 when the copies will be available And as soon as i get that date i'll publicize it on my platforms
0: could you have thought how mainstream this narrative has become when you first thought that you would write this book could you believe that you would be publishing it at a t- at a time when, you know, nearly the questioning of the Holocaust, is it's nearly becoming mainstream within alternative media.
1: <laughs> right, right. It has, it has. You know, one of the interesting developments is uh, artificial intelligence, uh, chat uh, GPT. There's a lot of controversy uh, because uh, a lot of people think that computers can think, and I don't think they can think. Uh, I hope I didn't offend any computers out there by saying that. But uh, so... Uh, who? So I typed in. You can ask the question. I typed in: Is sexual liberation a form of political control? And one of it got various answers. One of the answers is: I, as a, an artificial intelligence robot, uh, do not have opinions on this. But if you say it, it's obvious that you're a bad person. Now something really ridiculous, completely ridiculous. So why do, you don't have an opinion, but yet you're telling me that I'm a bad person because I, I came to the idea. Because sexual liberation is, is important for the unfolding of human character, something like that. There's a machine. What's a machine know about sex? Why is a machine talking about sex? It's obvious that it's programmed in. The answers are all programmed in. It's like Google or any of these uh, search engines. Somebody is programming the information, and there's information that they don't want to get out. And that, my, my book is, is one of them. But on the other hand, it's hard to control. It's hard to control. Monsters always get out of control, or machines uh, like this. And so, a friend of mine typed in: um, did, did, Jews, "Did Jews promote pornography?" No, this is an anti-Semitic statement. Then he types in: um, "Did the Jew? Did the Israelis?" Uh, take over Palestinian TV stations in Ramallah and broadcast pornography there in 2004. And the guester comes back. Yes, they did. Uh, and a kind of apology for saying what you said before. So the information is out there. It will come up eventually, even with all of this attempt to simply uh, stifle it. So I think it's going to backfire on these people.
0: Yeah. I I mean, clearly it. it, it is. It is. I think it's, People are increasingly concerned about AI and even people who've gone along with the COVID and, um, but I mean, you are the person that coined that concept that sexual liberation is a form. It's probably the right. most fundamental form of political control in our culture today. And um, it, I mean, the fact that chat GDP or whatever it's called is, even able to answer a question like that shows well that, it, de- it
1: right. depends it depends like if you type in my name and that then the book something will come up about well he on the one hand on the other if you just type in sexual is sexual sexual racial form of control they will never mention my name they won't mention the book the book i wrote is the source of that statement So if if the machine is honest about helping you to to do research, the machine should mention the book. Well, it doesn't. It doesn't. So it's back and forth.
0: And I I like it's so important to repeat these ideas so that people get a grasp of them. When you say sexual liberation is a form of political control, just explain what you mean.
1: Well, uh, first of all, man is a rational creature. Uh, uh, sexuality outside. Mo- morality is practical reason. If you have sexuality outside of, mor- of moral or rational pr- uh, principles, uh, you are going to lose your rationality. If you lose your rationality, you lose your ability to be a human being in some sense or other, and you're controlled by your passions. So at that point, anyone who controls your passions can control you, Well, passions are easy to manipulate, especially now with all these machines. And so what you have is one of the prime forms of Jewish thought control is uh, ready access to pornography. Uh, I thought that Elon Musk had taken care of this on Twitter. It's all back on Twitter. Pornography is all over the place. It's an essential form of distracting you distracting you, uh, getting you to go dwell inward. You're not outward thinking. You're not connecting with reality. You're not connecting with each other, especially young people who get addicted to this. They can't, uh, can't deal with members of the opposite sex. They become isolated. That's how it becomes a form of control. But when, when that story about Ramallah and the Israelis, that came out one year after I wrote the book, so it was in many ways a vindication Maybe. of what I had written before. So now we're going to bring out a second edition of the book, which will include that. All the stuff that has happened. Uh, the book came out in 2003. So, this 20 is
0: year-
1: yeah, so it's 20 years now that the book is out and nothing has occurred that has caused me to question that thesis. Everything on the other hand seems to vindicate and corroborate what I said there.
0: Yeah. And it wasn't only the Palestinians that were charged. I mean, this idea that we're all Palestinians now, you know, Ireland did not have any pornography in up until the sort of 80s, I would say. You know, apart from the odd copy of Playboy, maybe that may have made its way over from the States. But the same people brought pornography into Ireland when they started to pump it into, um, you know, cable TV, etc. Right. That was um, one of
1: the crucial vectors at the beginning, cable TV. I remember yeah. being, being in Austria. It must have been like the late 90s. And there it was. There's a, a trolley car going down the street. And on the side, there's this big poster. And it says, österreich braucht mehr Freiheit. Austria needs more freedom. And as soon as I saw the word freedom, I thought, oh, I know what this is about. I, it was about cable TV, which became the vehicle for pornography in Austria. That's exactly what I'm saying. Sexual liberation is a form of control. Break down the local culture by flooding the country with uh, pornography.
0: And uh, one of the points I've been trying to make to my Irish audience recently is that we, as a people, you know, we were always described as being sexually repressed. Oh, we were so repressed, you know, because we stayed within marriage. We respected marriage that very sacred relationship between a man and his wife, that, you know, God was at, had to be at the center of it for it to survive and thrive. And, you know, there wasn't a culture of promiscuity. Divorce was a no-no up until the 90s. And it still really is. You know, there is still a sort of a, sco- a social scorn about around divorce in Ireland. And, you know, we look at our neighbours in the UK and all of these broken families, and all these brothers and half brothers and half sisters. And it's it never it hasn't caught on in Ireland, really. Now, maybe I'm a bit naive, but I'm trying to tell the Irish we were the most civilised people, really, in Europe, in a way, because we, you know, we were able to restrain ourselves in terms of um you know, all of this um promiscuity that was going on the continent in particular in Scandinavia, the UK as well, you know, but all all of the countries really of the continent, maybe bar Spain or, you know, the more traditionally Catholic, but um so what how would you feel about that? I mean, is that a fair argument?
1: Yeah, sure. It it happened at different pl- in different places at different times. And the 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 first example was Germany. And the reason it was Germany is because it was conquered. It was conquered militarily, and they had no defense whatsoever against the conquering powers. Now they had two groups: the pretty much the Soviets in the east, and they had Americans, the French, and the British. But pretty much the Americans in the west, and you had two different systems, two different systems of control. And I think that the Western system was more deceptive. It seemed it, it, it used that notion of freedom. As a way of getting by everyone's defenses, and nobody knew what was happening. Nobody understood what was happening at the time, or they didn't want to know. And I've I've said this before. I don't know whether I've said it on your program or not. But Joseph Ratzinger played a crucial role in this regard, because he he uh, basically uh, took over the church during the Second Vatican Council by being the paritus of uh, Cardinal Frings, who was a real hero, uh, the Cardinal Archbishop of Cologne, and basically throwing out the Otami documents, which were uh, basically trying to protect the the Europe that you described when you talked about Ireland, except that he saw Italy as being subjected to that problem. This is 1960. The the correlative there would be uh, Fellini's movie La Dolce Vita. They're both talking about the same thing. They're both talking about American influence in Italy and the corrupting effect, the corrupting of sexual morals that's taking place under the guise of American influence. So what happened there earlier, there was uh, in order to get published anything published in Germany, you had to get a license and to get a license, you had to lie on a couch uh, uh, next to a Jewish psychiatrist by the name of David Mordecai Levy, and tell every tell him how guilty you felt because your father was in a train uh, thirty miles away from uh, Auschwitz or something like that. And it, uh, it, it this is, was a crucial moment, and the church resisted under Frings. First of all, they resisted the attempt of the Morgenthau Plan to starve the Germans to death. He told the German the Germans to go out and take the food if it's there. And do, it's not theft, just take it if you're starving. And then he also was a, a heroic fighter against pornography at that time. They had their own legion of decency. It was called the Volksfahrtbund. It Volksfahrtbund. They were against schmutz und schund. And now if you talk to a German, they get embarrassed if you say the word schmutz und schund. It sounds like it's, it's smut and filth. These are words that embarrass people now. Uh, because you don't sound cool or with it or progressive. Yeah. And I think that one of the people who was embarrassed was, was uh, Cardinal Ratzinger, because he got to Rome throughout the Ottaviani documents, said we need a positive attitude. We don't want to be negative anymore. At precisely the moment when the Jews broke the production code in Germany, it was classic misdirection. So they were the first. And then once they had that position of power in Europe as the big economy in Europe, they were uh, an outpost spreading American influence throughout uh, Europe. And it got it, it, late. It ended up taking a long time to get to Ireland. I'd say it was the eighties, but you, you know, better than I do when it happened.
0: Well, yeah, I was talking to a family member about this recently. We, you know, it was definitely starting in our generation, definitely. And the sort of, you know, the late sixties, early seventies, it was really getting going, but and, and I think our parents' generation were very, very worried. You know, I mean, their lives sort of revolved around the church, you know, and like that was a great benefit because it meant that, that you know, they were less inclined to go to the pub. And like maybe Monday night there were devotions. There was something on every single night that the church facilitated and rosary not family rosary etc and of course that has all been completely wiped out you know I think I mean it may be starting to make a comeback now um so and and so that there was a taboo around the idea that you would you know like we were definitely raised by nuns basically to to say like you do not go off and sleep around you have respect right. for yourself for your self dignity don't get a broken heart and that that's the whole, that's what sexual liberation does it causes heartache particularly to women right um but it and it destroys children because children can't cope with divorce it,
1: okay, that, I'm... that that was the situation in Philadelphia. It was heavily Irish. That was the situation in the nineteen sixties in Philadelphia. The orders, like the Christian Brothers and all orders, and the Immaculate Heart Nuns, the Say, Order Saint Saint Joseph Nuns, had all created schools, like high schools, uh, all around Philadelphia. And at that point during the sixties, they the nuns started to drink feminism. It was like giving whiskey to Indians. You know, they started to get drunk on feminism and then they started to preach this new gospel and the girls there started acting out. I'm talking about the mid the mid 60s and you you act out sexually. Chances are you're going to get pregnant. And if you get pregnant, uh, there's a chance you're going to have an abortion. And once you have an abortion, you become a Jew. That's what happened to the state of Pennsylvania. How do I know they became a Jew? Because they vote like Jews. We have a Jew, the Jewish governor in Pennsylvania when Jews, there aren't enough Jews there to elect a dog catcher in Pennsylvania. And now we have a Jewish governor, a man who made a career out of attacking the Catholic church, not just any benign Jew. He was a really aggressive anti-Catholic Jew. Now, why did they do that? Well, because, because they had, when you have an abortion, you're consumed with guilt if you don't go to confession. And then you have to get together with other people who are consumed with guilt and create a political movement. And that's called feminism. And that's one of the pillars of the Democratic Party. And that's how they take over. That's how they took over Ireland. And I'm saying the it, the vector, the best way to take over a conservative Catholic society is to have a priest as the guy who's doing it or a nun. Yeah. As the revolutionary. And that, that brings us to Notre Dame University
0: let's talk about that let's talk about that so in the current edition of culture wars magazine your magazine uh you've written this piece now explain to people about Notre Dame because they don't really know much about it here you know there isn't really much of an awareness this is the front cover of this month's culture wars but this is the story in particular so talk to us about this
1: yeah well uh so uh no, Notre Dame is uh, run by the Holy Cross priests, uh, has a history uh, with Hesburgh of, uh, basically who stole it from the church, put it under a lay board of trustees, but kept the Holy Cross priests in power. And from that time, they have been agents of the federal government. Now, what do, what, what do I mean? Let's go back specifically agents for sexual subversion. In 1963, the issue was contraception. The Rockefellers were the uh, population council, the WASP elite. They were the big people who were interested in contraception because they felt that Catholics were having too many children. And so what they did is they basically got Hesburgh to hold secret conferences at Notre Dame to undermine the church's teaching. No one knew about them. They were deliberately held secret so the bishop wouldn't find out about them. And then in 65, they issue a statement saying that the church's teaching on contraception is no longer persuasive. No one knew the background of these statements. It was priests all over the country who seemed to have, they all wore the Roman collar. No no one knew that they had been brought to Notre Dame and told what to think and told what conclusion to come to because it was all held secret. And so it had a devastating effect on Catholic solidarity. Every, all these people, I was, I was what? Let's say 65 or 17 years old in 1965. I didn't have a clue of what was going on. Why should I? Uh, the, par- the the parents and people who are older than me, 10 years older than me, who had already started families, were feeling betrayed because the te- priest is now saying that you're you're a bad person because you're having so many children. So that the Notre Dame uses it. They're called the fighting Irish. I'm I'm surprised you don't, you don't know that in Ireland.
0: No, I do. But I mean, I, like it's an Amer- it's it's not it's not real Irish. Like it's they're like the St. Paddy's Day
1: that's yeah. right it's American it Irish
0: to do with our, like they de- if you were to say to them so what part of Ireland are you from they'd be like I don't know Ireland mm-hmm. like like we don't really consider these you know people no, I, up, I, like, yeah
1: I I understand. I it's Irish
0: American, which is very different to Irish.
1: You're right. You're right. And, and I, I, the Irish in America. I'm a product of this because the Irish all married other Catholics, and so I'm half Irish and half German. So what does that mean? I'm an American. That's it. Yeah. But the best way. So so I'm, I begin the article by talking about this year. We're going to flash forward to fast forward to this year. The dean of Notre Dame University uh, records a speech in which he tells all incoming freshmen that you have to accept transgenderism if you come to Notre Dame. Well, the best way to introduce revolutionary principles to a Catholic audience is to wear a Roman collar. Get a priest to do it. I mean, he's a priest. I guess he knows what he's talking about, you know, especially if you're a, a, a poor What are you, 18, 17-year-old who shows up there who's had a bad education to begin with, and you want to fit in with everyone else? That's what happened, okay? Now, the irony here is the very moment that this priest, Father Olinger, makes this statement the other day, almost to the day the Catholic bishops of the United States say transgenderism is a bad thing and don't get involved in it because male and female God created them. Now, I I was helping out a, a nun from Africa who didn't know anything. Obviously, she doesn't know anything. She's from Africa. She gave a, uh, was given a, uh, an assignment to write about gender, gender ideology. She, oh. she, she 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 So I said, "Well, what is it?" She said, "I don't know." So I said, "Well, well, let's look it up." So gender means it's a sexuality is a social construct. That's what she. Okay. What do you believe? Well, I believe male and female he created them. I said, "Well, there's your paper." She writes the paper based on that. This is what they say. This is what I say. Draws her conclusion, hands the paper in, and a Catholic priest throws it back at her and says, You're not smart enough to write something like that. I'm not accepting this paper. Now, this is the type of insidious that if you if a professor at Secular U had done this, who cares? But you're, these people are using the authority of the Catholic church and the sense of mission that you have when you're a priest in the Catholic church to basically overturn Catholic uh, sexual morality in the interest of the oligarchs who run the federal government because they get paid to do it. That's what's going on here. And now with this thing that I just sent you, it seems to me that's what happened in Ireland. And Notre Dame apparently played a crucial role in the undermining of the social order in Ireland over this period of time.
0: Well, talk to us about that.
1: Well, there's so so you th- this. Uh, there's a man by the name of uh, McGraw. Uh, he was uh involved, uh, big uh mover and shaker in the Holy Cross order. Mm-hmm. Uh, he uh gets involved with a guy. They co author a book called Something About Primary Education in Ireland, and they start promoting this book by inviting there's a cross fertilization now between inviting people. Ireland who are on the same page over to Notre Dame where they create this Irish studies program. Now I know you, I've introduced you to the man who was going to teach Irish at Notre Dame, teach the language. You'll meet him this summer. Uh, he's leaving tomorrow, uh, a couple days from now. Uh, he was offered a job there. What is the purpose? I'm thinking, what is the purpose? Do, 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 do uh, Americans really want to learn Irish? I mean, much as I admire the language, it's not a big demand topic here. You know what I mean? Yeah. You're starting a whole new program. I think that the purpose of the Irish Studies program was to overturn the social order in Ireland. I think that's why they get paid. That's why Notre Dame gets paid. They have all kinds. Of, I'll give you another example. Uh, uh, the, the roommate of that African nun I told you was a woman from Afghanistan. She was anointed as a female leader of Afghanistan. She was getting a free ride at Notre Dame paid for by the government so that she could study gender studies so she could go back to Afghanistan and then preach the gospel of feminism and gender studies. I said, are you sure you want to do that? She said, well, I got a job already for me. I said, yeah. What kind of job? Well, actually, the guy who uh, used to have this job died when he got into his car and a bomb went off. Uh, so this is the Taliban taking care of gender studies in their way in Afghanistan. Fair enough <laughs> <laughs> so, but but I'm saying this is a dynamic here you mm. you want for a conservative society like Ireland, you don't want to come in with a red star on your hat you know and singing the internazionale. you want to walk in with a Roman collar yeah. And hey, he does he's a he's a priest. He can't be a revolutionary. Well, yes, he can. Of course he can. And so what you have is the perversion of all of this Catholic teaching, all of this Catholic culture to uh, uh basically enslave the Irish people by crippling their crippling them by creating sexual liberation as a form of control. That's what happened. I think you you know more than I do. What about this lady? Uh, Mary McLeese. is it Mary McLeese?
0: Yeah. I don't. I mean, as far as Ireland con- is concerned, maybe yeah, well, we we had these two feminist presidents, you know, the first one, Mary Robinson. I mean, you know, she really pushed the whole feminist agenda and, you know, spoke about Manon Hair and the women of Ireland and how repressed we all were as a result of Catholicism and and uh, you know, I mean, she was definitely pro. I would say she's some under some sort of MK Ultra programming. Like you know, she never see, she would be going around with the likes of Bush and Bono and within the UN and uh, very sinister. But then Macalise was coming from a slightly more Catholic perspective until she discovered that her son was gay, and everything changed then. And she really is very, she's a bit like, you know, one of these people in in Notre Dame who would, you know, be wearing the Roman collar, as it were, portraying, going over to Rome, being, doing, I think she did a PhD in Rome and wanting to be, you know, again, it's to try and attract Catholics. Well, if this is Catholicism, then she knows what she's talking about. She's, you know, very uh, learned in theology so you know maybe we all need to be feminists now and you know support the gay disco because That's her right. son is gay
1: uh, so didn't she come out uh, wanting to ban baptism
0: yeah there was something about that yeah i know you sent that in your email i mean i i have completely switched off mainstream because i i cannot physically stomach it anymore so I can't say to Finn. Definit- I've given up on her. When I heard the son was gay, and I knew then she was captured, and I just lost all respect for. They're in my opinion, both of those presidents are Freemasons. They're both, in my opinion, that's what they are. An absolute well, traitor to Ireland and traitors to the women of Ireland.
1: Yeah, and traitors to the Catholic faith too. And that's what that's what Notre Dame does. So they, they came over here to Notre Dame. They were given jobs teaching at the law school, these kind of cushy jobs like Pete Buttigieg got until he got the job in Washington and he dumped them. Uh, uh, they, they would come over here. Uh, but in, in this instance, let's say, okay, Mary, let's say Sean McGraw is talking to uh, Mary. Sean McGraw, by the way, uh, saw his moment of opportunity. He was, he, they would go out and they court rich people. Uh, and so they schmooze them. They have a whole routine where they fly them out here and they t- you know, do all kinds of nice things. And, uh, oh, yeah. This woman. Uh, so he's dealing with the trusty family. Uh, the husband dies mysteriously in a plane crash. And then he's there dealing with the woman and decides, what the hell? So he jumps ship. He leaves the priesthood and marries this woman. And now he's in charge of that fortune. So now he's really got big money behind him personally. So when somebody like Mary McLeese says something like, let's ban baptism, baptism's awful. And you can see somebody like uh, uh, these Holy Cross priests kind of wincing and saying, no, no, calm, calm down, Mary. And then they're kind of taking yeah. aside. Mary, listen, it's, I have a better idea, okay? Let's just make sure that baptism is not a requirement to get into Catholic schools. How about that? Because if we do it, that's exactly what they propose in their book on uh, primary education in Ireland. That's exactly what Notre Dame is trying to do with all these think tanks that it's proposing, because then you can flood the schools with people who are non-Catholic. And then some of these people are going to say, well, I object to, uh, you know, praying, having a crucifix, or I object to this, and I object to that. And you can secularize the schools. Uh, by doing it that way so I think that the whole point of a place like Notre Dame is to be subtle about it use the Roman collar to get in they let their guard down and then you inject the revolutionary poison into the society and nobody can figure out how it happened
0: yeah it's the infiltration process that is so dangerous it's so insidious it really, really is that there's in this article. Um, there's a reference to a woman who's um, she's talking about transgenderism and abortion, right? Just because I want to make a comparison between her or it or whatever it is, a man I don't know what it is, and a woman in Ireland who's part a journal liar in Ireland who's really responsible for abortion being legalized here. So just to explain about this person that came to give this talk. Yeah, so
1: they bring, so they're going to have uh, the big, the big issue now is transgenderism. Okay. That's what well, that's the cutting edge of revolutionary activity. So they bring this uh, woman in It's Hey, this lady has a mustache. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm confused here. It's this black lady with a mustache. She has written nothing. She has no academic credentials, but they did a show on her on uh, NPR national public radio, the public radio thing. Uh, And she starts talking uh, obsessively about the connection between transgenderism and abortion. Well, there is is no connection between transgenderism and abortion. Other than in this lady's mind. And that becomes obvious because as soon as she starts talking about abortion, she starts saying, uh, abortion is birth. And she repeats this compulsively. So what, 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 this, what you see here is this is a woman, no matter how many hormones she's shooting into her veins, causing that mustache to grow. It's a woman who had two abortions. OK, and she's completely crippled by the guilt that came from those two abortions. And so uh, she doesn't have the option of tra- uh, a sacramental confession. I don't think she's Catholic. So she takes the other option, which is rationalization and politicization of her vice. And she becomes an obsessive crusader for transgenderism and abortion. And Notre Dame brings her on as a speaker. It's uh, how do you justify this? How do you justify this in any way, in any sense, any type of academic, any type of academic justification?
0: What sort of reception did she get? Do we know? Well, it was
1: a podcast, so I'm not in a room. Oh, okay, you okay. know what I mean? Yeah, it's I a podcast, so you have a very limited frame of what you can see. You can't see what the audience is like. You can't see what their reaction is like. All you can see is the lady who is the professor of gender studies there trying to uh, egg her on uh, in a way yeah. that she knows. This lady, the Notre Dame professor, knows I- I'm sticking it to Notre Dame. I'm sticking it to the Catholic church. We know that we're doing this and we're going to disrupt their double game, which is basically we're Catholic and we believe in transgenderism. She knows that's impossible and she's trying to go against that. And and that's kind of the, uh, the, the sub, the subtext of this discussion, which is basically, uh, just this uh, lady's guilt driven obsessions about the fact that she killed her children.
0: Well, it's very interesting because the the woman that is responsible really for getting the the blackmailing, blackmailing the Irish people into voting. Well, if I mean, I've no doubt that George Soros rigged that referendum. He bought the referendum, but they needed to, you know, sort of warm up the Irish people who were very pro-life, as you know. So they concocted this story about an Indian woman in the run up to the referendum in a, on abortion in 2018. And they claimed that she had, lo- she had lost her life as a result of being denied an abortion. And this was a complete and total lie. She died and her baby died because of hospital neglect, which is notorious in Ireland. But this woman here, her name is Kitty Holland, and she worked for the Irish. She works for the Irish Times as quite a senior features writer. She herself has had two abortions, two abortions. And she is the poster girl with her big lie. This story of this woman and the Irish Times headline was woman denied abortion, die something to that effect. And I I got a call the next day from a doctor from that clinic saying "Yeah, i worked in the irish independent at the time the competitor paper and he said this story that the irish times has published is a complete and total lie but it was too late the the, the vigils were, were they they'd already got the vigils going mike it was unbelievable it was a cia operation
1: right it is that's exactly was- that's exactly it's a color revolution they have a they have yeah. a a plan. They've never changed. They started in 53. They're still going according to the same plan, which is basically uh, orchestrating public opinion and giving you the sense that there's this groundswell of indignation or whatever, uh, and that you better act on it. uh, And we're going to have a referendum on it and you better vote for it. And even if and then we'll count the votes, too. So you don't even know uh, whether whether they won or not. This has been carried on throughout the entire half, second half of the 20th century, all the way into the 21st century by the same people. If it, it, they have it down to a science.
0: It, it, absolutely. And in a country like Ireland, such a small population, you know, people quite naive at this stage. Yeah. They're going to fall for it. You know, we, I mean, there were children, this indoctrination about this story by the Irish times and the mainstream media, it was so intense that children in Ireland knew this name Savita and they were saying Savita died because there's no abortion in Ireland you know they were coming home from school saying this to their parents their parents were well no not quite (laughs) but look yeah that's that's what they do it's um it's it's horrendous But it's changing now. um, Sorry, Mike, time is flying. I want to just touch on your piece as well, which we have in this month's Irish light. It sort of ties in nicely. If you're finished with the article. Yeah, um, sure. Sure. So explain, explain what this is about, please. (laughs) <laughs> because not all of not all of our our listeners ex, ex, are exp, explain
1: what extra ecclesia no nulla solace means it means outside of the church there is no salvation is it this is the article where i talk about uh bishop bishop baron right uh, and ben yes, Shapiro. Yes. Isn't, isn't that part of it I'm,
0: yeah
1: yeah so uh yeah so uh bishop baron has become a media figure here uh, and he's on the mainstream media and he's kind of like the, uh, the face of the Catholic church now in the United States. Uh, and uh, he gave, actually gave a speech at Notre Dame and to his credit, he uh, criticized the land of the lakes uh, coup d'etat, which basically stole the university from the church. But he, 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 he uh, Ben Shapiro, uh, a conservative Jew who uh, is pro-life calls himself pro-life. He came here to give a speech uh, to the pro-life group, um, uh, I asked him a question at the speech, but anyway, Ben Shapiro invites him on his show and then he jumps right into this, the, uh, into the main issue, which is, uh, am I going to hell?
0: Mm.
1: Uh, OK, now he's kind of like a brass Jew. This is the type of thing Jews do. They, they put you on the defensive, they bring you in, put you on the defensive And at this point, uh, you can you can uh, Google uh, uh, Bishop Barron and Ben Shapiro and you can see exactly what he said. I can't repeat it. It's in the it's in the article. I don't remember because it's nothing but gibberish anyway. He invokes Vatican II. He dances around the idea of invincible ignorance. And then finally, at the end of it, it looks as if uh, Ben can be saved uh, just by being a good Jew.
0: Amazing. Uh, well, that's,
1: that, that's not that's not the teaching of the church. And as a bishop, yeah. he has a responsibility to teach uh, the church's teaching. So I said, in my way, I said, look, it, this would have been very simple. Or well, when Ben Shapiro asks you a question like that, all you have to say is, uh, are you baptized, Ben? And he'll say no. And then you say, well, if you refuse to be baptized, which I assume is what you're doing you know you know what it is if you refuse to be baptized you cannot be saved because baptism is necessary for salvation that is a fundamental pillar of the catholic church it goes all the way back to the acts of the apostles when the Jew, when the apostles overcome their fear of the jews after the pentecost and peter walks into jerusalem and he opens the conversation by saying you killed christ and the jews it says are cut to the heart And then the Jews say, uh, well, what must we do to be saved? And he says, you must be baptized. That's it. If you do anything else, you're not preaching the gospel. And so Bishop Barron is not preaching the gospel, and uh, God will hold him accountable for that fact.
0: So there's there's different, I didn't, I wasn't aware, you know, that there's different levels of salvation, apparently. You know, there's different... No, it's a no, ladder. A... Like if you're a good Catholic, then definitely no problem. But if you're a good Jew, yeah, no, you can still get in. You know, no, you can't. No, you can't. No, I know you can't. No, well, you can't. Uh, you,
1: the, 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 be, the question is, are you baptized? This is a fundamental threshold. It's a threshold you have to cross if you want to be saved. If you so I you, we can deal with the question of invincible ignorance. Okay, there are people who have lived on this earth who could not know about baptism or the gospel. It was impossible. There was the whole basically 16th century was Europeans going over to places that had never heard about the gospel. So if you're an Aztec uh, in the 10th century, you don't know who Jesus Christ is and God will judge you according to how you follow God's law as engraved on your heart, which is known as the moral law. Okay. Uh, But uh, that's hard to do. That's hard to do. And those those people cannot, if you cannot know about it, it's called invincible ignorance. Uh, But that's different than refusing something you do know. And every Jew knows who Jesus Christ is. I guarantee you that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I guarantee you that they they know who he is. (laughs) They know what the Catholic church is and they know they don't like it. And they know they've been rebelling against it for 2000 years. And so why is this Bishop pretending that there's, there's these are not true. Well, because everyone is intimidated by the Jewish control of the media. Everyone's intimidated by it. Everyone has a bad case of fear of the Jews right now. And that's, that's, that's a, a crucial problem with the Catholic church because the, all of these things started at the same time, the sexual revolution, Catholic Jewish dialogue, breaking the production code and the legal decriminalization of contraception all happened in 1965, which was the last year of the council. And t- taken together this Catholic Jewish dialogue has had a catastrophic effect on the Catholic Church. So just as you know the the cutting edge right now at Notre Dame is transgenderism, the cutting edge in the Catholic Church right now is warnings during Holy Week, in your missalette about reading the gospel of St. John. If you're not careful, you can become an anti-Semite by reading the gospel. This is basically the warning that was in my missalette, the (laughs) missalette I read during Holy Week. Oh,
0: Well, I mean, you know about the new hate speech laws in Ireland. Obviously we'll all have to be burning our Bibles soon because uh, even, I mean, even if you think that the Jews killed Christ or that, Jesus said, your father is Satan. If you even have those thoughts, the government will know that you're having those thoughts and you'll go to jail for five years and pay 5,000 euros as well. So, you know, it's... it's um,
1: Where it's, is the Catholic Church? The Catholic Church should be defending these people. The answer is Notre Dame is was an agent for the subversion of the Catholic Church in Ireland. It's that simple. It goes back to Notre Dame. Exploiting that weakness, exploiting the Irish respect for the priesthood, using that Roman collar to inject poison into the veins of the Irish people.
0: Yeah, it's so true. It's so true. Now, I was showing you some maps earlier, Mike, because I find I have certain tools where I'm trying to red people, red pill people on the GAQ, and certain tools that I use, such as, for example, what. We'll be publishing these in the Irish Light. Um, these are the the leaflets that are now being banned in Florida. Right. Um, which, that, uh, by the
1: way, those leaflets led to that law in Florida, which is just as bad as the law in Ireland. Thanks to Ron DeSantis, who just lost my vote. By the way.
0: Oh, what a creep! What a creep! Um, yeah so they're they're very i mean these you know they they these are by Goyim tv handsome truth but they're like they're basic and but they show how jews dominate all of media abortion lgbt and all of that but also talk to us about these um maps because it's very important that people understand that this is not a new problem and that, and why this problem existed why jews were banned from 109 countries I, I don't know have you seen this map before but it, it's very explanatory about the movement now it's interesting that they they are not in Ireland and this map here explains that you can see that um, the lighter shade of green is that there's no record of any ban or that the Jewish presence was negligible. So that was the case in Ireland, because they were not going to come because it was too Catholic. And there was a lot of very outspoken anti-Semitic priests who were protecting us from uh, Jewish influence.
1: Well, you had but, Jews. You had Jews coming to... Our, Cromwell was a Jew. Cromwell was a Judaizer. The, the Puritans yeah. were Judaizers. So they didn't even send Jews. Exactly. They had people like Protestants, the same. Exactly. They were all Judaizers. Yeah. So I I had a a friend, a friend showed me a cartoon. So there's a woman and she's there in the principal's office and her son is uh, standing next to her and the principal's behind his desk and the principal's looking at a paper and the principal begins by saying, so you've been kicked out of 109 schools. Assuming, obviously, it was the school's fault, right? So what is what is the dynamic here? What is the dynamic? It's I cover this in in the Jewish revolutionary spirit. Um, it, the crucial figure was uh, Saint John Capistran, uh, who was active around the time of the Council of uh, Constance, uh, the time of the Hussite rebellion, which was a Jewish inspired uh, rebellion. The Jews were involved in that one of the first uprisings against the rule of the Catholic Church uh, at this time and uh, he talked about Jewish privilege this is not a new concept i've i've talked about it. i wrote a, a pamphlet called Jewish privilege which was based on an article in culture wars which you can still get uh, if you go to culturewars.com uh, but basically it's it's not it's not a new concept it was the biggest problem all throughout that area you're talking about right around this time okay so what is it well basically it, the prince who always needs money and knows that Jews will lend him money. And so he invites them in and the deal is always the same. Okay. I will lend you money. at, uh, Let's say 6%. Oh, that's great because the normal rate is 43 and a third percent. But if I lend you money at 6%, I'm going to charge everyone else 43 and a third percent. So the prince lets the Jews in. And suddenly they start grinding everyone because you'll never pay the Jew back at that point. You will never get out of debt with interest rates like that. And suddenly you have the entire country uh, in debt, in debt bondage, and they're getting angry. Now, this is a time when uh, these people knew where the Jews lived. You know, they knew where they lived. They knew where the records were and they knew what they could do which is basically, and that's what happened. If they talk to the king, the king, I don't want to hear it. I'm getting a good rate. You're just going to have to put up with it. So at a certain point, they just bust in, uh, burned down the Jews' house and burned down his records called the pogrom. And of course, that's because of anti-Semitism. That's what the, the Jews will tell us now, that all these... Europeans were anti-Semitic. No, they were all in debt. They were being ground into uh, nothing, into dust by the Jews' exacting interest. And so they rise up in rebellion. And at that point, the king's got a real problem. So what's he do? What's he have to do? He has to expel the Jews. It's that simple. And that clears the books and then everything's okay again until he wants easy money again. And then the Jews come back in. That's the whole story of why hundred uh, Jews were expelled from 109 countries in, in, in Europe over this period of time.
0: At what point did they, okay, so usury, the charging of interest on money lending was the big no-no, but at what point did they start bringing in the degeneracy or did they always bring, and I, don't, I really don't want to be unkind, I really don't want to, but they are associated with all of the vice that we see in modern society. Right. Day. okay so when did
1: they start to bring that in well pr- pretty much so they were forced to live in a ghetto uh and they were forced to wear badges and the reason was you y- you have no business talking to a jew because they would say basically the only reason a jew wants to talk to you is to to uh, undermine your faith or corrupt your morals and so in germany i did this article a couple months back they had Warning signs, basically, at the beginning, at the entrance to the ghetto. So one of the most famous was the ghetto in Frankfurt. That's where the the Rothschild family, Rothschild means red sign. There was a red sign outside this guy's house. And that's where you went to lend, borrow money uh, if you were stupid or desperate. And so what they put up there was something called the Judenschwein, the Jewish pig. And in Frankfurt, it was a picture of a pig. And there are the Jews uh, sucking on the pig's tits. OK. And one Jew is picking up his tail and the other Jews licking the pig's ass. Uh, and it's kind of pejorative. You know, it is kind of pejorative. Slightly. Uh, but it, but it's but it's a warning to these people. If you go in here, you, you may be in trouble. So, over this period of time, the the crucial change came with uh, Napoleon. He emancipated the Jews in France, and every place Napoleon conquered, the Jews were emancipated. They were citizens. They had never been citizens before. And so, once they had these rights, they started to exploit them, and they basically erected uh, their system of exploitation, which was sexual liberation as a form of control. So, specifically, this is in that book we did, uh, uh, Chivota Catolica's book on the jewish question this is the official magazine of the vatican 1890 does a three-part series on the jewish question warning catholics about what is going on here so in that book it's either that or rotzinger's uncle's book where he says the jews uh, are waiting in places like paris or budapest for the landed aristocracy to show up uh, they have a little bit of money uh, but not a lot of money Uh, The Jew sees them and immediately introduces, uh, puts his arm around them and wants to show them a good time. So it's alcohol, get them drunk, take them to the whorehouse and gambling. That's what they've been involved in. That's the story of Cincinnati. I mean, across the river from Cincinnati, that was Sin City, Covington, Kentucky, those places. Uh, That's what they did. Meyer Lansky, what do you think Las Vegas is? (laughs) It's Jewish Sin City, except that every city was Sin City, major capital. And so what happened is, you know, you get the guy drunk. He's this young kid. He's never been to the big city before. He's having the greatest time of his life. And suddenly he runs out of money. No problem. No problem. I will lend you money. And you see, that's how the whole thing, they got control of the aristocracy through the promotion of vices like prostitution and gambling. That's how they took control. They then got so powerful that they were buying the government. They told the government what to do because the government officials, they want money too, and they're willing to go into debt. And so they get, they're caught in the same trap. And so uh, this is Georg Ratzinger telling the Austrians, you better start enforcing laws about usury because if you don't, there's going to be a reaction. As soon as this group of people, as soon as the Austrian and German people find a leader, well, guess what the German for leader is? Ein Führer. And that's what happened. There was a reaction in Germany, and we're living in the aftermath of that ever since. We got the same situation now. You know, so let's go back. Ron DeSantis, remember our, the great white hope, the man who stood up to Disney. Great article by Lisa Rangel in Culture Wars about Disney, uh, Ron DeSantis standing up to Disney. Okay, they passed a hate crimes uh, uh, law uh that basically makes based on what you were showing those those cards that you show were handed out as yeah, pamphlets and yeah. fl- fly as flyers in florida Pass this law okay okay it's florida okay what's the capital of florida i think it's tallahassee isn't it it's tallahassee so where does he sign the bill does he go to tallahassee to sign this bill into law he goes to jerusalem Why why, why are you going to Jerusalem, Ron? You're governor of Florida. Okay, so the the Jews, oh, it's great. We love you, Ron. We love you. And they have a big banquet for him. Who's sitting next to Ron DeSantis at the banquet? Miriam Adelson. Does that name ring a bell? No. She's the widow of Sheldon Adelson, one of the richest Jews in America who is now dead. OK, and how did that Jew earn his money? Casinos. Some things never change. You got you got so much money now being generated by casinos and the Wall Street casino that the Jews yeah. can buy up any politician they want.
0: Yeah, our, our when our hate hate speech laws come in it, whenever it'll be fairly imminent i mean they might as well just go and sign them in in jerusalem because that's where it's coming from
1: tell so, vaticar to go to jerusalem to sign the bill yeah, and to, vaticar. To, exactly so what here
0: how do
1: we how do we interpret the cunning of reason at this point what are they doing here they are doing they are exposing themselves when did the irish ever talk about jews when did they ever talk about jews maybe 50 um, years ago
0: only in very negative terms yeah that but but it, it
1: was not yeah. widespread. It was not widespread, no. something like There's
0: that. There's no Jewish presence. There's, There's no. ver-
1: So what are they yeah. doing now? They are making the Irish aware of the predatory nature of the Jew.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, that's the cunning of reason. That's what Hegel said. Cunning of reason. This is mm-hmm. God's way of taking evil and turning it into good, because now we have a consciousness of the who the enemy is and what we have to avoid.
0: You see, though, what I cannot stand in all of this is that we we all understand now that these terms—racist, homophobe, transphobe, anti vaxxer all these labels are have no meaning. They they are a joke, conspiracy theorists, etc. But the one thing that many people on our side will do not want to be called. And do not see uh, they don't put them in the same category as all of those other silly Marxist terms is anti-Semite. And they will they will not touch this subject, Mike. You know, I've spoken to you about people I know and I've told them I've shown them the things that that woke me up to it, and they will not touch it. What is wrong with these people? Is it a lack of courage?
1: No, it's the Catholic Church is to blame for this. It's the Catholic Church, it's Vatican II, and it's specifically Joseph Ratzinger who imposed that German guilt on the entire Catholic Church. So I have uh, African nuns who are now supposed to feel guilty because of the Holocaust because they're Catholic. This is ridiculous, but that's how it happened. We're back to the very thing that we started talking about at the beginning of this program. The best way to take over a conservative society is have the revolutionaries wear Roman collars. Because the guard is down. That's the that's the issue with the Jews. That is act that is the what I told you about Holy Week warning Catholics not to read the Gospel of Saint John because it might turn them into anti Semites. Where did that come from? That is Jewish control of the Catholic Church, and they've allowed that to happen in the name of Catholic-Jewish dialogue. That has been uh, one of the worst things that's ever happened to the Catholic Church because you've got priests and bishops, and I'm talking about Bishop Barron now, denying the gospel. They're denying the gospel. The Australian bishops issued a statement saying the gospel is not a reliable guide to understanding the Pharisees. Well, who said that? Didn't St. John at the end of his gospel say everything I said is true? Are you calling St. John a liar? And if you introduce this idea of doubt into the Catholic faithful, how are you going to get it back? What else are they going to doubt? Maybe the Jews were right. Maybe the the followers of Jesus came in the night and stole the body. That's what the Jews have been saying for 2,000 years. If you undermine the gospel, why don't you believe that? This is a crisis. The crisis is centered on the Catholic Church, that the bishop here, the bishops, since 1965, when they stole, 67, when they stole Notre Dame, they have rolled over and played dead because Notre Dame is rich and powerful. This is the the gospel. The truth is the opinion of the powerful. That is the new gospel that they proclaim every time they let Notre Dame get away with promoting transgenderism or whatever the latest abomination is to come down the pike.
0: Every Irish Catholic instinctively knows that there's no such thing as dialogue. We don't dialogue with Muslims or Jews or Hindus or who are Protestants. We have only one word for them, and it is convert, convert. This is the true faith. Like the Irish people know these words instinctively. It's the true faith, the one and only faith. So, I mean, this whole concept of dialogue Is such a nonsense, and there is there is no conversation. You know, we we pray for your conversion, but you're not going to be you're not going to be saved until you convert.
1: Um, look, I've tried I've tried this myself. How many times have I talked to Charles Moskowitz? I I, it's easier to talk to a robot than it is to Charles Charles Moskowitz. Every every time you say something, it's like, well, he's not really a Jew or Jews only exist as, a, as, a, as an entity, as a category, if you're praising them for being smart. As soon as you say, well, you're responsible for the Bolshevik revolution, oh, well, they weren't really Jews. Actually, Charles has changed on that. He backed down. Before, he would say that Trotsky wasn't a Jew. Now he's saying, well, yeah, Bolshevism was a Jewish operation. But, you know, it, it's an exercise in frustration. It's an exercise
0: in frustration. Yeah, but they love to see us frustrated, which we're not. We, we are trying to save their souls, which is very decent of us, really. But, um, you know, but the protagonists now in the so-called truth movement, people like Peterson, Jordan Peterson, and, and you know, the MAGA heads, the Steve Bannons, and in particular in the field of health, Naomi Wolf. I have my eye on her at the moment in terms of what she's doing it's very clever because she has captured the the whole anti-vax movement in a way and and she's put out the fight somehow she got hold of the Pfizer trial results which are absolutely horrific but in her speeches she's been giving out about the Nazis and she's making these comparisons you know to the Holocaust and to the to Mengala she brings up Mengala and it's I think it's a sign of desperation. Like she's obviously been told You know, you you have to keep the Holocaust thing going. Um, And I've questioned her, asked her on Getter, where she has a huge following with with Bannon. How is it the fault of the Germans or the Nazis or how is this anything to do with the Nazis when all of the CEOs of the vaccine companies are Jewish? Please answer that question. So what did she say? Oh, I haven't had any answer, but I did ask about a year or so ago for her to do a stream with me. And she didn't. No. She, you know, she turned it down. So she obviously knew. Um, so what are your thoughts on her?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, she sees a, 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 a an opportunity. I mean, it's yeah. uh, it, it's true. I mean, there, there, there is reason to fight the vaccines, but she drags all this baggage along with it. You know, yeah. it's like you've got, got Jews coming into the church now. We've got a converso crisis. Dawn Goldstein or uh, Rachel, is it Ray, Rebecca Bratton-Weiss, uh, they come into the church, they get baptized, and then they're, as soon as they're, they're in the church, they start criticizing people for being anti-Semites and talking about how anti-Semitic Chesterton is. Dawn Goldstein just did a thing with uh, uh, Dale Alquist and his operation, contriticizing Chesterton. Well, that's something you should leave at the door when you, when you come into the church this is this is jewish privilege the fundamental pillar of jewish privilege is the holocaust and that means all you have to do is show up and say i have relatives who died in the holocaust and you win every argument that's not appropriate for the catholic church that that's sort of what we have to deal with now
0: yeah yeah but I, i i think it's it's really it's very dangerous it's very dangerous because when people start seeing hang on it's a jewish operation big pharma is a jewish operation right
1: the crucial guy in this regard now the crucial the crucial guy in this now is robert f kennedy jr because he's he was stood up to the vaccine and now he's going to run for president over here and he's starting off his conversation by saying the cia murdered my father and my uncle that's getting traction over here now that's a huge story and it, and he's also saying that uh, the murder of his father and uncle were, was a coup d'état, and that he's going to reverse that coup d'état. Uh, now, how are you going to do that? So, who are you, are you? going to talk about the issue? He uses the word neoconservative all the time. Uh, you, never, people, you,
0: you will never say the word Jew, and you know that.
1: I know. He he had to apologize because he said the word Anne Frank. Uh, why can't? Well, I have to have a license to say the word Anne Frank, yeah. you know. Trying to compare, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever. But you know, it's just a reflex, even for Catholics like Kennedy, to talk this way.
0: But are you not disappointed that he has already apologized about comparing COVID to the Holocaust or whatever it was? Like, I, I mean, there's no way this guy is going to be able for them. They'll have chew him up for breakfast.
1: Well. I, I, We'll see. We'll see. I don't know. He's already
0: apologizing to the Jews uh, and he's not even hasn't even, you know, has he even said he's definitely running yet?
1: Oh, he did say definitely he's running yet. I would just like to ask him a question. Uh, What do you mean by neoconservative? Yeah. Is Anthony Blinken a neoconservative? Now, Blinken is a Democrat, which means he's a liberal and he's in charge of our foreign policy. And he's the man responsible for the war in the Ukraine, which you oppose. But is he a neoconservative? Isn't there another word we should be using here? And what is it?
0: Yeah. Well, his father would have used it straight up. His grandfather would have definitely used it. (laughs) His
1: his father got earned the animosity of that group of people by, first of all, uh, an obscenity prosecution against a Jew by the name of Ralph Ginsburg for a magazine called Eros, and then for going into uh, Sin City in northern Kentucky and basically cleaning up the town and driving Moe Dalitz, the big Jew who was the head of the Jewish Navy, to Las Vegas. He drove them out of Kentucky. And I think that's part of the reason that they hated uh, Robert F. Kennedy. He understood that uh, dynamic.
0: Sure, yeah. Well, look we live in hope, but I'm not, I mean, look, he he wants climate deniers to be jailed. So, I, I mean, I've interviewed him and He's fantastic on the vaccine and the links to autism and all of that. Brilliant. But uh, they'll either kill him. If he's genuine, they'll kill him. You know that. Won't they?
1: I don't think they can do it now. I, don't, you, you, We are past assassinating Robert Kennedy's. I think we've gone way beyond that. We can't do that anymore. So they'll assassinate him by de- denying him access to, yeah. uh, to platforms on the Internet.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's certainly interesting. It is. It's, uh, But I, I, I just don't, I, I really feel politics is over. And, you know, the, the system is so rigged at this stage. People just have to be able to de- defend for themselves. But anyway, so look, on the book, it's not going to be out for another few weeks, you reckon. Right. Yeah. Right. Can I just ask you finally, because I don't want to keep you over the hour, but just when you explain to people what this book is about, what what do you say?
1: It's the Holocaust narrative is the title of the book. So this was a this story is the creation of a series of narratives that began with propaganda campaigns in World War II and changed over a period of time to what it is today. That's that's the story. It's I, I, this brings me back to my roots in literary criticism. I'm examining literary artifacts, so Anne Frank's diary, Elie Wiesel's Night. Uh Yeshi kaczynski's painted bird uh, schindler's list all the way up and seeing how the narrative changed over a period of time holocaust then, for example is refers to being burnt whole and aileen Wiesel uh, in his book which uh, my grandchildren had to read in a catholic high school one of them had to read that book twice said that the jews were uh, killed in flaming pits yeah ah well we don't hear about that anymore do we Anyway, that's the type of analysis that I'm going to, to to and I'm going to come up with. What is the purpose of it? How, where did it come from? What is the purpose? And how is it being used
0: now? How much are I mean they hate they hate you now? How much are they going to hate you after this? I mean, is how damning is your conclusion?
1: <laughs> I, I I have made the list now of Holocaust deniers on the ADL. I was just an anti Semite before, and now I'm a Holocaust denier.
0: Okay. So, but look,
1: uh, not- they can't—they can't kill you twice, Gemma. They can only kill you once. That's
0: right.
1: And once and you're then- dead, once you're dead, they can't kill you. So, what are they going to say? He's really—he's a really bad anti-Semite. You've already called me an anti-Semite. <laughs> no, I mean he's really, really, really bad. What are they going to do? You've already shot that bullet. Yeah. That's the only bullet yeah. you have. What are you going to say now? I have overdue books at the library. That I. I- <laughs> I, I kicked my
0: cat once. What are you going to say? They've said everything. I mean, it's the same with me. They said everything they could possibly say about me. So <laughs> it's water off. That, what,
1: one of the crucial turning points in this narrative is when the the they could no longer defend it as factual. The story is in the book. And at okay. that point, they criminalized it. This When they criminalize something, it means they can't defend it anymore
0: that's the end like that's the bottom line that's the bottom line and are are, do you come down on hitler quite hard you're you're not a fan of hitler i know that
1: hitler is irrelevant to my story in a sense hitler did not create the holocaust narrative i guarantee you that he didn't do that this was created after the fact by people like cd jackson and the cia and had uh, Eisenhower was involved in it because of the Rheinwiesen and lager and all of the atrocities, and war crimes he committed. The Soviets had committed war crimes. They were involved in it. That's the narrative. Hitler was long gone by the time the narrative got going.
0: What year was the term invented?
1: In the 70s. 70s. It was the 70s. It didn't exist before the wow. 70s. And that, and that was a uh, a TV series in America. And my my my, wa- my wife was teaching in the public schools at that point. She was a Jewish colleague she had. And suddenly she walks in with a big badge that says, we are all Zionists now. Uh, this is the same lady who would criticize my wife for wearing a crucifix. Okay. She can wear the, the Zionist badge, but my wife is not allowed to wear a crucifix. That's uh-huh. a double standard that was coming into being during the 70s. 70s was a turning point, crucial turning
0: point. So prior to the 70s there was no such word as as the Holocaust. Well there were all
1: kinds of different descri- I mean there are all kinds of crazy descriptions of what happened that yeah. had to basically get get uh, formalized into a coherent narrative and they never really succeeded. So mm-hmm. is uh, I, a question for you is is uh, Steven Spielberg a Holocaust denier? This is Mr. Oh, yes, Mr. He is.
0: Yes. He you is. know why you know why he's a Holocaust denial yeah um, well are you talking about Swindler's list I'm talking about Schindler's list the yeah, he, he, propaganda- didn't, he had water coming out of the shower that's
1: Holocaust it. denial I'm sorry that's holocaust he, denial that disgusting. is the that is the real story of what was going on in these camps all the way back to the movement of the the big Jewish exodus from the pale of the settlement when they got to Germany they, this is a lady wrote a book in 1910 about what happened when she and her Jewish uh, people reached the German border. They got off the train, they had their clothes taken off them, they were sent into showers to have showers, had their heads shaved, their their clothing was fumigated, and they got put back on a train. Because the shtetl was a a, a vector for typhus. Yeah. They 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 had so many they they were they had so much of that disease there, that they had become immune and they could spread that disease. So wherever the Jews went on their migratory path, typhus epidemics broke out. And that's what the Germans were trying to deal with as early as uh, the uh, 1890s, which is when the Jew all of those Jews that left the shtetl headed for Hamburg because that's where you got on the ship and went to New York. And so all along that trail, you'd have typhus uh, epidemics breaking out. You had them in New York. They'd break out in New York when the Jews arrived. They were vectors like typhoid Mary. She carried the disease and she didn't get sick.
0: That's what they were dealing with. And the shaven heads. I mean, they were basically trying to when people see the shaven, all oh, the shaven heads, you know, it's such an emotional response. They were trying to save their lives by shaving their heads to get rid of the lice. Are you stupid? I mean, I know I would have been somebody years ago who would have said, oh, the poor Jews and their shaven heads. But now I see a course. You know, the Germans were meticulous about hygiene.
1: That was the, the, the highest level of hygiene, modern hygiene in the world. In the coming, world. And the people were coming from yeah. medieval hygiene, which was unknown at the, the medieval conditions in the Städel, in the Pale of the Settlement. That was the conflict. That's what the Germans had to deal with when the Jews arrived.
0: Yeah.
1: And that's 1910. That's when the book came out. So it was probably 1890-something when she had that experience.
0: Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Well, the Spielberg thing is a total. I mean, that that is <laughs> it's so obvious, it's blindingly obvious. If you watch that film, there's no gas coming out, but people swallow it, hook line and some because they're under the spell of Hollywood. You know, Hollywood is cat Jewish Hollywood casts its spell. But that is going to be the book of the year, the book of the decade, the book of the century, probably. Oh, thank you.
1: From your so, mouth to God's ear, Gemma.
0: wow. Well. <laughs> You've God's ear. I've no doubt about that. And fidelitypress.org, culturewars.com. That's where you'll get it along with all of Mike's other fantastic books. And I would really recommend that people get on and buy them. So Mike, thank you so much. That was so informative as always. Um, thank you, Gemma. We'll, you'll be back again soon. Is there any anything else you wanted to say before we finish?
1: God bless Ireland. God bless America. Logos is rising.
0: Please, God. Please and you're
1: helping. You're the, you're the main person in Ireland who's doing it. So oh, it's, an wow. honor to, it's an honor to be on the show with you, Gemma.
0: Oh, well, it's always an honor. Thank you so much. Thanks for everything you're doing. And we look forward to your cozy chat on Friday at 10 o'clock Irish time. Good. So make sure to tune in, everyone, to that. Thanks a million again, Mike. God bless. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Good night. Good night, everyone. Bye-bye.
1: Bye-bye.